Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where cutting-edge, nationally recognized care is delivered through a compassionate approach. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia. Welcome back to another episode. One of the most common questions I get in my practice has to deal with nutritional supplements. A lot of people are on supplements these days and they bring in bags of them for me to look at and see which ones may or may not be helping their pain. And it's a good question. Uh, There are so many brands out there and it can make your head spin trying to figure out what is reputable, what's good quality and what's not. So today I have the perfect guest and expert on, Dr. Todd Cooperman. He's going to help me break down this topic. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Sanjeev. I appreciate uh, you having me on. All right. Dr. Cooperman is a nationally recognized and respected researcher. He's a president, founder, and editor-in-chief at ConsumerLab.com. And I've been using ConsumerLab.com for many years since I first found out about it. Guys, if you're not familiar with it, go to it. Once you're done with the podcast, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's an amazing website that breaks down independent reviews of supplement quality, amongst many other things. But Dr. Cooperman is a graduate of the Boston University School of Medicine, where he received his MD in 1987. He also received his bachelor's degree from Boston University with a major in medical sciences and a minor in economics. Recognizing a lack of quality standards and oversight in the U.S. dietary supplement industry, Dr. Cooperman founded ConsumerLab.com in 1999, guiding it to become the leading independent evaluator of dietary supplements and nutritional products. He has been called as an expert witness by committees of the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to give testimony regarding the quality and regulation of dietary supplements and has been regularly invited to speak about dietary supplement quality at the National Institutes of Health and now this podcast where he's going to help us figure this topic out. So let's roll up our sleeves and get going with it. Todd, tell me a little bit though, before we jump into the topic, kind of how a physician who goes to Boston University Medical School, finds his way into this type of work? It's a good question. So I'll, I'll try to make it short. So I came out with my MD and realized that I, I kind of like the intersection of kind of products coming on the market as well and the healthcare and patient care aspects of medicine and wanted to kind of marry that and decided to go right into the pharmaceutical industry where I worked for three years at Bristol-Myers, now Bristol-Myers Squibb. And then into the biotech area, working on new drugs based on neuroreceptors. But then <laughs> realized during that period of time how difficult it is to actually successfully create a new drug and what a, uh, a long shot that is. And I really, I think I have an entrepreneurial spirit and felt that I wanted to start something to provide information, not just a product, but information to help consumers. And I was actually, there were articles coming out. This was around. 1999, a little bit before that, just a few years after the passage of uh, DSHEA, which is the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, was a real turning point in the supplement arena because it allowed companies to start making claims on the products that a product could actually do something. 
It couldn't say it could treat or prevent a disease, but might help maintain this or that function. And there was an explosion in the supplement area, especially around herbals at that time. And then articles started coming out here and there showing that there were problems with the quality of these supplements on the market that people were rushing toward. Back then, there were things like ginkgo and echinacea and saw palmetto, very different from where we are now. And there was no one really testing these things on, an, on a, uh, a regular basis. So I uh, decided that that would be what I wanted to do. And I saved some money and hired a guy right out of the FDA who had been testing supplements only on kind of a, like a firefighting basis. He was testing things like ephedra which was, had certain, certain dangers at that point. And he became our head scientist. And we started going out and buying and testing supplements and showing what the quality of these products were. And then over time, ConsumerLab has really expanded, not just to focus on just what's in these products, but what do they do? What's the right dosage? We have over 90,000, I think 95,000 paying individual subscribers to ConsumerLab, many universities, libraries, and have expanded also into healthful foods that are sold nationally. We don't go buy and go go to a local farm, supermarket and just buy the local meat product or something like that. But we're buying packaged products that are sold nationally. So we're looking. We test things like cranberry juice and psyllium and dark chocolates and things that have a health benefit. And that's the long and the short of it. And here we are, and over like 24 years later, still doing the same essential thing, but just covering a broader base. Give us a sense of the company. How many people do you have kind of in the background yeah, the there co- working on things? The company is relatively small. People are always surprised. The entire company is about 12 full-time people and then some part-time people and programmers on the side on top of who we have here. So it's a relatively small group. And the reason why it is, we decided early on, myself and our head researcher, the vice president of research, there are so many different types of products that we test and so many different types of tests that we do. It didn't make sense to, to create a laboratory, uh, a full laboratory in-house running all these tests, but to be utilizing outside laboratories that are expert in specific areas. So if we test, say, a fish oil, we will send that to multiple laboratories, each of which is expert in a different area. It might be heavy metal testing. It might be testing for oils or testing for, you know, for rancidity. If we're testing a multivitamin, we may be using different laboratories for the uh, water-based vitamins versus uh, oil-based versus minerals. Uh, We're testing olive oil. We even use the services of an expert olive oil, you know, tester. So there's so many different things that we're involved in. Our focus on the research side is to pick the right methods, which is not easy, pick the right labs, and to be able to interpret that data and then report it. Uh, so we have a whole staff on the editorial side, including myself, another PhD with expertise in writing about dietary supplements you know, and communicating that information in as simple a way that, as we can. Although we are told that our information is a little bit very deep because we have extremely interested and knowledgeable readers like yourself who pose great questions to us. And we are constantly digging in and learning more to try to answer those questions, the very specific things like what time of day and should you take something and what should you not take it with and all the drug interactions that might be out there. Um, you know, and you mentioned, you know, patients come in with bags of supplements. There's so many questions to be asked there. It's why do you think you need it? it? Does this really work for that? Is it the right dose? Is it the right formulation? Is it the right chemical form? Might it be interacting with the other drugs? You know, might it be interacting with other things that you're eating? 
So it, it really is a complicated area. We're constantly trying to add more useful information. And there are always new supplements coming onto the market. Oh, for sure. So let me make sure I understand correctly. It's not that you have a team of white coat chemists in the back room that's running gas chromatography tests. It's that you have a network of experts that can help you evaluate these products in a manner that you feel is necessary. Is that accurate? Pretty much, yeah. The laboratory testing is mostly done outside. The only in-house lab testing that we do is since every tablet and tablet needs to be subjected to disintegration testing, make sure it really will fall apart and release its ingredients. And that's a pretty standard test. That equipment and that, that test we run in-house because we're running those all the time. Okay. But we're using outside laboratories for the analytical chemistry. We do, obviously, the expertise in-house to figure out what tests to run and where to run them and how to interpret that data. So for some of the scientists out there listening, what are some common methods that are used to look at a product and evaluate its purity or potency? Yeah. So I am not the head of research. I'm the head of the company and then trying to put everything together. Our head of research is a PhD uh, and yeah. toxicologist, a pharmacologist, toxicologist, who actually, he's not our original head of research who would come out of more academia and the FDA and was with us for, I think, 14 years. The current head of research for the last 10 years it comes out of industry, which is actually very helpful to us because it helps us really understand how industry does things <laughs> and how they sometimes do things wrong. So he would be able to really be the one to talk about the methods. But when you're looking at a supplement and trying to determine the right test, there are so many different ways of looking at it. There are simple tests that may just be based kind of on assessment of the color that you're seeing in, say, uh, turmeric or, or things that are kind of red. They're often they're color metric based tests that are very poor tests, really, and can be easily fooled. Yet the industry has commonly used these types of tests. When you get down to the molecular level, that's where you're really being much more uh, accurate. And so we're using, you know, HBLC type methods. It's interesting if you were to go on the website like Alibaba, which is a uh, massive site that sells uh, everything and also ingredients for supplements. Not a site that I use, but I, I remember being shown this several years ago. You can buy all different grades of supplement ingredients on Alibaba, for example, and the price will depend on the method by which it's been certified. You can buy a very cheap version of, of some ingredient that's been tested based on its color versus another one that's been tested based on, say, HPLC. So, and the thing about how things are regulated in the US is that the FDA does not. Uh, specify the method used to determine the quality of the supplement. That's left up to the manufacturer to determine. It also doesn't specify even contamination limits. Very, very rarely is there a situation where there, there are limits on contaminants. That's left up to the manufacturer. So at the mercy of the supplement company to do the right thing by you when you're buying a supplement, some companies you know, will cut corners or use simple methods and others kind of go to a, hold their products to a much higher standard. Earlier, you were describing consumerlab.com, and you're correct. It, it has evolved, for me at least as a clinician, it's far more than just, it's not just a consumer reports version for supplements. I mean, you can go on your website as a subscriber. You guys do put out kind of your top picks, so to speak, but you look at as well and you post a lot of the up-to-date literature regarding the research studies behind it. And one of the things that I really like that's very helpful is you also talk about the cost per 
dose or, or per capsule. And what's the best value when you take into account potency, accuracy of what's on the label, what's in the capsule or pill, and the cost? And for me, I find that to be very helpful. And I was wondering, through all the years, have you seen a correlation between product cost and its effectiveness? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't base it on cost. In fact, often the opposite is true. Like some of the most expensive products in the category are more likely to fail than, say, the middle of the road range uh, products. And you can get actually even very, very low cost products that are high quality if you're buying typically from some a very large company. Some people in the supplement area, you know, shudder. But the truth is that for a simple ingredient, you know, like vitamin D or vitamin C, you can spend, you know, two cents, a penny, whatever, and get a great pill from Walmart, from their, their house brand or Costco. So because those companies have a lot to lose if they're selling products that are defective. So, no, I wouldn't base it on cost. And, and we do find that a lot of the um, brands that are sold, say, in physicians' offices or direct sales, kind of these multi-level marketing companies, the quality can be very good. Um, in fact, they tend to be pretty good. But the cost is usually, you know, two, three times higher than you really need to pay for certain supplements. That's my experience. So you can't really just base it on cost. I don't normally put plugs in for companies, but I'll put a plug in here. You'll make up the cost of the subscription for consumerlab.com for one year in your choice of your first one or two supplements if you're looking to buy, because it can certainly be a big difference in cost and you don't always get what you pay for in this industry. Now, the other thing you look at are for contaminations. And that's, you know, again, as a clinician, I'm always looking at safety, you know, do no harm first. And it's really disconcerting to me that it seems that you can't really trust what's on a label to be in the bottle in terms of potency, but also sometimes there's other things. What are some mm -hmm. common contaminations that Consumer Lab observes in the supplement industry? Yeah. So the most common contaminants that we've come across are heavy metals. You're most likely to come across those when you're dealing with herbal products made from plants because many plants absorb whatever minerals are in the ground. And if there happens to be, you know, lead or arsenic in the area, it's going to absorb that and they can accumulate in those plants. So for example, our tests of like psyllium supplements people take, you know, for GI kind of regularity. Lead contamination is very common. You can find lead in turmeric, you know, getting kind of to your area, pain management. Uh, Turmeric's used often as your, uh, to, to reduce inflammation. The evidence is so-so, may have a moderate effect. In any event, lead can occur in turmeric. Um, in fact, lead has been added to some turmeric just for, for color purposes. Fortunately, when you're buying an extract, like a turmeric extract, sold as like curcumin, because the curcuminoids, you're less likely to have that, that contamination from, from heavy metals because you lose those contaminants when you extract compounds from the herbs. Certainly fish oil, people have always been concerned about there's mercury in fish, maybe there's a problem with fish oil. Interestingly, you don't get mercury in fish oil because mercury binds to protein and fish oil is fat. So for a few years, we were testing for mercury until we just became quite clear that's really not a problem uh, with fish oil. 
There used to be a problem with heavy metals also and other minerals like calcium, but they really, the industry has definitely cleaned up its act there. But we do test any mineral supplement for other heavy metals. There are other very more specific issues such as uh, red yeast rice, which is a cholesterol-lowering supplement, although the government doesn't really consider it a supplement because it naturally contains lovastatin, which lowers cholesterol. You know, it's basically, it's a statin. statin. Yeah. Yeah. But it can contain, if it's manufactured incorrectly, meaning that it's the yeast growing on the rice, is, if something goes wrong, instead of making lovastatin, or also known as monocolin, so there are all these different names for the same thing, it can instead make something called citrinin, which is a kidney toxin. So, mold toxin? you know, yes, yeah, it's like yeah. a mold toxin that affects the kidneys. So we test red yeast rice for that. That's a whole other interesting story because sometimes with supplements, like in this case, since the government says if you make this product and you actually list the amount of lovastatin in it, it's now a drug and it's not an approved drug. So therefore, you know, you're breaking the law. So companies won't say the amount of lovastatins that are actually in there, which is a disservice to the consumer because they won't know. But that's why we're here to tell people which products actually, how much they actually contain. And in the case of Reggie Strike, some contain no statin really because the companies are just trying to stay out of trouble, but at the same time, they're doing terrible disservice to consumers who are buying this to try to get some kind of effect, but they won't get it. So what we look for really, you know, depends very much what the ingredient is and what kind of like byproducts might occur or what's commonly contaminating it. So I pulled up on the website, the summary for osteoarthritis. I'm just going to read and share a little bit so listeners can understand the work you're doing, I think it's important. Under the What CL Found, among 15 supplements that were selected and tested, only 10 met quality standards and FDA labeling requirements, while four did not, and the status of one was uncertain. So that's interesting. And then I'm not going to list the names of the products, but you know, example A contained only 43.9% of the collagen it claimed to provide. Another product that was a Boswellia product had only 50.9% of its claimed boswellic acids. And oh, by the way, that product, I know it well, is very expensive. One of them showed only 1.8% of the claimed amount of boswellic acids. So it goes on and on. You know, it's, it's very, <laughs> for someone who, being an integrative medicine physician, in addition to my physiatry, who does recommend supplements regularly, it does make me pause a little bit because I think there's pros and cons to regulations, obviously. Uh, sometimes you can feel like you're showing upstream as a professional trying to get people treatments they need. But the flip side is they can ensure a certain level, a standard level of uh, quality. And I think in the supplement industry, that's a concern of mine that people don't always get what they think they're getting. So really thankful that we have this type of work available. So I thought I would just share that with people. Sure. Thanks for doing that. Now, if someone gets on the website, they got their membership, and they see a product that's top rated by a consumer lab. What does that mean? So it means several things. First, it means that we tested it, and we tested the quality of the product. Because only a product that's been approved in our testing can really be a, obviously a top pick. If it doesn't have what it claims, it's not going to be a top pick of ours. If it's contaminated, it won't be a top pick. So among the products that are approved in testing, we then go through those and say, okay, in this category, you'll say whatever it is, Boswellia, vitamin C, SAMe, whatever it is, we then look at the recommended serving size, you know, basically the dose. 
is it giving you the amount that's been shown to be clinically effective with that ingredient? Because it, it may have one, some products may have one-tenth of what you want. Some products may have 10 times what you want and put you in trouble. In fact, with vitamins and minerals, most of them, as you know, there are upper limits to how much you want to take. We're factoring that in as well. And I should mention, when we talk about regulation, supplements don't even have to tell you, and they don't tell you, if they exceed these upper limits. These limits are established based on good science, indicating that you start increasing your risk of adverse effects when you exceed these levels. And sometimes it's okay to do that if if you're deficient in a vitamin mineral. But for most people, you really don't want to be doing that. So we're factoring that in as well. And then, as you mentioned, we're factoring in, well, also the formulation. Is this the best way to take this product as a a tablet or a tablet or a gummy? And I must say, I'm not a big fan of gummies for a lot of reasons, but they are huge in the market now and growing. CBD Uh, gummies are very popular. Yeah, we've tested those as well. We had a whole review on CBD. The issue with gummies, first, it's hard to make a gummy. Actually, this is something we just learned a couple of months ago, but last year, I know you're familiar with the USP, United States Pharmacopeia, which is a group that has for over well over like 150 or more years, I think, has been establishing methods for testing drugs and supplements, supplement ingredients. Last year, came up with methods, and these methods are submitted typically by industry, by the way, and then the USP evaluates them, but they approve methods for evaluating gummies, multivitamin gummies, that allows these gummies to have like up to 250% of the listed amount of, say, vitamin C. For a tablet or a caplet, there is a a little an overage allowed, but it may be more like 25, 35, 40%. So here they're allowing more than double the listed amount to be in the product. I think the other one is, I'm forgetting offhand, it's either folate or B12. Also can be, yeah, I think it's folate actually. Folic acid can be also, I think it's 245% of the listed amount. I think it's a bad idea from a consumer perspective. Companies basically ask the USP to approve that because it's hard to make a gummy and get the right amount in there and also have that amount remain at 100% or greater throughout its shelf life, which is there are not a lot of requirements from the FDA, but a product does have to have 100% of what it claims through its shelf life. So companies don't want to produce a product that's going to fall below that. Otherwise, they're in, they're in violation of the regulations. So they put in more. And so if you're buying a gummy, just came out and got shipped to uh, your local market and you bought it, it could potentially have two and a half times as much C, vitamin C and some B vitamins that then it says, if you got it later on, you know, it kind of nears its kind of best buy date, it'll have a lot less because gummies are actually a liquid, a semi-liquid environment. I think they're about 10, 12% liquid water. And so things break apart and disintegrate faster in a gummy. Wow. So much to consider and science behind this. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Um, you mentioned the USP. Can you elaborate on that for people? And just in general, for someone who's out there, let's say they're at the store and they want to pick up some fish oil or vitamin D, what are some tips that they can keep in mind to determine if bottle A is maybe better than bottle B if they don't have mm-hmm. their phone handy to look at your website? Right. Well, kind of as mentioned, before you walk into the store, first, you got to just make sure that you right. need that supplement, right? And if you do, do your homework and know how much do you need. Some people just hear, oh, I should take some vitamin D. I'm low in vitamin D. There are products that have 
10,000 IU. I mean, most things are now labeled in micrograms rather than IU, but we'll stick with IU because most people know that. And there are other ones that have 400 IU. And you need to know, well, how much do you need? Because too much is a problem. Uh, you can get too much of, of a certain vitamin, as I mentioned before. In terms of, the, then you want to know the type. Should it be D2 or D3? And at this point, everyone's, D3 is pretty much the only thing on the market, and that's fine. And then, as I mentioned, you know, what should it be? Is a gummy okay? Is it, should it be a tablet, a liquid? And some of the things to consider there are really, you may need to change the dose, or maybe this is something that you and someone else in your family are sharing, and you want to be able to modify that dose, in which case, liquid's a lot easier than breaking a tablet, for example. In terms of brands, as you said, if, if you really can't use Consumer Lab, you can look on the label. And there are, USP does also have a certification program like Consumer Lab where they're testing products. It's a little different from ours in that one, well, one, they're using the USP methods, which sometimes are too lenient, as I pointed out. And also, they're not always getting the product off the shelf like Consumer Lab does. We will only test products off the shelf. We will not accept products from a manufacturer. And the reason is not really because manufacturers will like give you a different, a better version of it. It's that products can suffer during transit, during storage, during sitting on the shelf and can change. And so if, if all that, you really need to factor in how's that product going to perform when you buy it. We're buying it off the shelf only. If there is no seals at all, I'd rather buy a seal product that had the USP seal that didn't that had no seal on it. Consumer Lab also has a seal. It's not on as many products as you'll find on the USP. It's a bigger group. They tend to work with companies, try to get products approved across large product lines. We're very focused on specific types of products. But USP also does something that we don't do, which is they also go into the manufacturing facilities to make sure the companies are following good manufacturing practices. We're not in the factories. We're just focused very completely on, on the product that you're buying off the shelf. So you can look for USP. There's another group, NSF. They do something similar to, to USP. But downside is, you know, you still won't, the USP or NSF, you're not going to know if these products are really still giving you what you want. It's just that from a quality perspective, they met those requirements. And I think a key take-home point there is to obtain these certifications, whether it's Consumer Lab, NSF, or USP, it's voluntary, right? Yeah. This has to be a company that's committed to demonstrating to its consumers a level of excellence, of quality, and they're making the investment in these processes. It's certainly at least a place to start for now, I think. So finding that on the bottle saying USP certified or... or Certified through Consumer Lab is a great place to start. Yeah. And actually, you can also go on our site. So the products that come in on a voluntary basis, we do have a page that lists those products that have been approved on a voluntary basis. They represent about one quarter of all the products that we test. Most of the products we test are not due to a company you know, asking us to test it. It's really due to our readers requesting that we test certain brands. We're constantly surveying them. So you'll find a lot of products on our site that actually may be fine, but they just haven't gone through this voluntary testing because it is expensive and it's probably about $4,000 per product. And a company that has a large product line, it gets expensive for them and certification has to be redone every two years. So a lot of companies don't participate in that. You'll learn about products that are not necessarily approved by those under USP. You'll learn about that on the Consumer Lab site. So you, for free, you can see that quarter of the products that have been approved by us on our site. It's under our quality certification program uh, listing. And I would just quickly throw out another nice free thing that we have on our site. 
you don't know like how much vitamin D you should be, you need at, you know, at your age and your gender. We have a very good free resource there. It's a consumerlab.com slash RDAs, where you can look up really what the requirements are uh, for every vitamin and mineral, just to give you a ballpark of what you need. Although you certainly can meet most of those through your diet. You don't necessarily need to take a supplement. Yeah. Okay. So I had you on the hot seat here for about 30 minutes, about to let you off, but I have one, one question here that a little controversial but I want okay. to get your thoughts on, okay, buying products from Amazon versus uh, online dispensaries like Fullscript or Emerson. Okay. I can't comment on the Fullscript or Emerson. I just don't know because I, I think they sell like a variety of brands. We think it's most important when you're buying a supplement, you got to think about what you want and then you start looking at brands. I don't like looking at brands and then saying, I'm only going to stick with XYZ brand because a brand can do a great job with a in one area, like Jaro, they, they do a very good job, say, with uh, probiotics, but they may not be doing, doing as well a job with another type of supplement. So think about the type of supplement you want first. Amazon is a crapshoot. <laughs> as you know, you can get anything on Amazon. And there's been a lot of studies recently. One of the supplement manufacturers themselves went out and bought competing products in a number of categories that they produce and found that the majority of products in most cases from smaller brands that are only sold on Amazon really did not live up to their labels. It's been astounding what they've been showing. So if you're going to go on Amazon, you want to stick from, I would recommend sticking to a bigger, well-known brand and make sure you're actually buying it from that brand and not through a reseller. And you see that on like the walmart.com site also, that a lot of stuff is being sold on Walmart. We, We had one company tell us we had tested a product that failed our test. And they said, well, if you bought it on Walmart, it was probably a counterfeit. People actually make a counterfeit supplement under their brand name. You want to make sure you're getting it from the, the actual company and not from a reseller. That's a good piece of advice. And yeah, I do have some concerns about Amazon in terms of how long it's been sitting in storage, what's the temperature of the environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's for me as a clinician. I, I like using the kind of online virtual dispensaries, uh, like full script that they cater more to physicians. They also provide a lot of education and information. And then I pick companies. I do start though with looking at what are the good manufacturing processes of, that are in place for the different nutritional supplement companies and then dive in deeper. And if I can find individual comparisons, I think that it really helps. I think this is a great episode. I really wanted to get this out there because I get these questions a lot and times it does feel like the industry is like the wild, wild west, but it's not quite like it used to be. I think since that 2010 Deshay Act, there have been a lot of improvements and there will continue to be improvements. And then the work that you and your organization are doing are extremely helpful. Last question for you, Todd, before I let you go, I'm notorious for trying to learn about my guests' health habits and how they stay energetic Mm -hmm. and healthy. And I think it's really obvious question for you is, are are there any supplements that you take yourself that you find to be very helpful or ones that maybe just recommend in general? What are some of your favorites? Since we, and we test foods as well. So probably like yourself, I try to do, I try to try to stay very healthy, eat very, very well, very, very helpful food. So my needs in terms of supplements are minimal. I will take some vitamin D toward the end of the winter, spring, and not a lot, maybe uh, up to a thousand IU. That's it per day typically from a liquid, just because it's convenient. 
I've had my family members take melatonin because it does trigger, you know, sleep. It really does work. If and you need a very low dose, I wouldn't take too much. Uh, one milligram can be plenty. So melatonin, I don't use it that much. Some people in my family do, and on my recommendation, some people are a little low in B12. So that's another important one. Just personally, as a 60-year-old male in pretty good shape, I don't really take much more than that. Yeah, I like those. And one I almost universally recommend to people is magnesium. I don't feel like we're getting enough through our diet and even organic foods. And then a lot of the symptoms I suspect I see are from low magnesium. And, and I also feel like it's a pretty benign product that at a minimum can help with bowel movements, which most people seem to need these days. But then it's individualized, of course. I like your approach, you know, start with good, healthy diet, healthy living. And then I think the supplements, a little bit like food insurance that can fill in the gaps if you feel like you have big holes in your diet, but you can't depend on them as a primary source for health. Right. I agree with your approach there. All right. So again, it's consumerlab.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. I encourage people to check them out. They do have a lot of free information. Then of course, if you want to get more, you can subscribe to their service and just arm yourself with another tool in the toolbox to make a great decision about your own health care. So Todd, I want to thank you for your time and thanks for being on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it, Sanjeev. And I'd be happy to come back if you have any more specific questions and other, other topics related to this. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lakia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com. <laughs>